Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. On our last episode, we hosted Michael Greeley, founder and venture partner at Flare Capital Partners. Michael and I covered a whole host of topics around the healthcare industry. So many, in fact, that I invited my friends and colleagues, Brittany Moran Mazadri and Todd Bellamere, to join me today and record a special episode of Definitively Speaking that breaks down my conversation with Michael. So that's what we're going to do today. Let's jump right into my conversation with Brittany and Todd. Here we go. So Brittany, good to be back here with you again. Tell me, what what spoke to you about what Michael said on the podcast? My goodness, there was so much great content there, and it was hard to pick what I thought would be the most interesting for our listeners. What stuck out to me really were two points that I think speak really well to each other. First, you and Michael had a conversation about M&A activity among healthcare IT companies, about how new IT companies are entering a very saturated and competitive market where these big and established players are acquiring and just scooping up all of these novel solutions and evolving the boundary of their service offerings. So what does that look like and how does that affect patients in the next couple of years? And then you also had talked about retailers like CVS and Walgreens emerging into the provider space, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, you had made a comment about it in the past. It's where you got your birthday cards and your shampoo. And now it's where I go to get my flu shot. So it's just, it's a very interesting and uh, not obvious evolution for CVS entering that space. So the thing that stuck out to me is whether or not these mergers and acquisitions are ultimately good or bad for lowering the cost and access to care if we are consolidating all of this activity through those major companies, or if patients want that diversity to be able to find the type of providers that will treat their longitudinal care needs as opposed to episodic care needs. What, what jumped out about me, you know, you said that, you know, 10 years ago, I got my razor blades and shampoo. And then, I, you know, five years ago, I started getting my flu shot. What CVS and Walgreens and Walmart want to do now is they actually want to be my primary care provider. They want to do more than just a flu shot. They want to, you know, check my reflexes, you know, check my temperature, check my weight, do the whole full primary care treatment of that. And I just don't know if I see myself going to the corner CVS to get uh, a full, you know, replace my primary care physician to get a full physical workup. I know, Todd, you've been thinking a lot about this type. What do you think of this? Would you go to CVS? Yes, for sure. But I I think that What's really struck me about the conversation really kind of starts first and foremost with something that that I kind of obsess over, and it's what the future looks like, right? When we talk about whether it's M and A or technology companies getting involved in the mix, 
that really piques my interest for sure. Like uh, trying to see what does the the end of the book look like? I am that guy who tries to read the end of the book first to say, all right, well, how's it end? Let me just figure that out first. Then, okay, let's fill in the blanks as we go. Or, you know, for movies, does the dog die in the end? I'm not watching it if it does. So, you know, that's that's the kind of uh, the, the thought process that I go about it. So when we talk about you know, who is going to be doing this, the, going there for PCP visits or their primary care stuff in the future. It's the kids, right? It's the 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 Gen Zs and millennials. And I, I'm a Gen X and I'm, like I said, if I'm obsessed with the future like that, then I, I'm a little bit maybe more on the Gen X side that would say, sure, I'll go see a PA at, at CVS to uh, get my yearly physical or something like that. But it is like that sea change that we are on the precipice of right now that I think is just so fascinating to talk about and, and to hear from people that are at the forefront of it to really get their perspective and and start game planning or, or gaming out what that system looks like in the next three, five, 10, you know, 20 years from now. I mean, there will be things available to us then that we really don't have a language for almost now, uh, for sure. And there's some things we can talk about today that that really speak to the early days of those changes too. So uh, very exciting though. So Brittany, you're our designated Gen Z rep here. Oh, am I? Uh, oh, you absolutely are. So I appreciate you know. that, but I am squarely an elder millennial. <laughs> okay, well, you're gonna have to substitute in for that today. Right. Because Todd saying as his Gen X, he's like, yeah, I think I would go. Would you go? Would you, could you use CVS as your PCP? So that was a really interesting question. When he was talking about how millennials and Gen Z are more likely to, I, I think so. But I also think that younger millennials and Gen Z are also calling mom and dad to ask about their healthcare needs. And mom and dad are Gen X and boomers who have experience in the traditional PCP space. So I'm interested to see how fast that will shift and what will truly influence that. And I think... You had made a comment on your conversation that whoever holds or controls that digital interaction on your device will be the arbiter of your healthcare. And I think that Gen Z and millennials are faster to adopt that type of technology. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I go there for my flu shot, but I love my PCP, so I'm going to go call her if I need her. <laughs> well, when you, when you think about that, when you think about those apps, that, like the quantified life concept, right, where you, on your, your phone or your watch or whatever, you can track literally how your health is progressing. And so if you can imagine a future in where, you know, the Walgreens or the CVSs or other technology companies will start taking that data and say, hey, you don't really need to go see a PCP at a hospital or a physician group. We can actually take that data and build you a healthcare outcomes plan. Like that is the type of thing that you would imagine is in the near future. And who are the people that are so used to quantifying their life right now and putting it on social media and all that stuff? It's, it's millennials and it's Gen Z. And of course, you know, as we go forward, uh, generations to come because it's the, the comfort factor, right? You think way back, your barber would throw leeches on you in the medieval times. And like then the next step up, there's a traveling doctor that went town to town. And then from there, okay, now we have like a, a hospital where you can go to. And then there were physician groups and now there's urgent care clinics and, you know, step by step by step, we're getting to, oh, now you just go to the robot for your care. Like <laughs> it's that generational steps as you go, the more comfort you become with what's available to you and what the system is providing, you know, the, the next generation is going to say, oh yeah, that's more convenient. I'm going to take it. So let me ask you this to both of you. Who do you think is going to get there first, the retailers or the major health systems? 
I think it's going to be the health systems. How come? Call me old fashioned, but I think there really is a role for the primary care physician. And I still think the IDNs are, even the IPAs, the most IPAs are being absorbed into IDNs these days, are going to own that. And the reason is, I think actually healthcare on the phone is very fragmented. So I'm going to have my telemedicine provider on there. I may have you know, my Apple Watch and all my exercise on there. I may have a sleep thing. If I'm a diabetic, maybe I'm using a Livongo tool, you know, or I'm using Omada. I could have 10, 12, 20 healthcare apps on my phone, each one solving a point problem or a point piece of my care. I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV. I don't know how to interpret all of that signals and what that is. Maybe if you connect the data from, you know, app A, B, and C, I'm really sick. I don't know that because I'm not trained and I can't connect that. And I don't think that CVS, Walgreens, any place episodically is going to catch that. I really think you need the more longitudinal care. Uh, and whether you get that from your primary care at an IDN or you get that from like a one medical, uh, which is kind of the outsource or even a concierge medicine. But that's just my perspective. What do you think, Todd? Uh, so, I mean, it's definitely interesting when you, that you brought up the term longitudinal, like connecting all those dots. And to me, what that the, that sentence leads directly into something like machine learning. And so, you know, we saw a lot in the you know late 2000s and 2010s where IBM Watson came around and they, you know, a bunch of hospitals tried it out for oncology care and it, it kind of fell flat on its face a little bit. And, and so, you know, I, I think you know, as you think about how technology grows year to year, and even like Moore's law, where computing process doubles every 18 months, um, once you get into a certain number of doublings, things can get weird. And, and what I mean by that, you think back on like 2008 ish, when the iPhone first came out, and that was like, oh, my God, a touch screen, that's crazy. That was only and within like, I, <laughs> I know, yes, yes. Within a few years, Touchscreens were on everything. They're, they're in your car. They're they're everywhere. And that's simply a matter of we got past a certain computing process power where you were able to do more things. And that's kind of where machine learning started coming out and and doing more and 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 being better at what it was supposed to do. However, you know there were some stumbling blocks like there is with any technology. So I think that as we go forward, and, and you know Justin, when you said you know you've got like five apps that are tracking it, who is going to be able to tie that together with a, a coherent story about what happens to you or what is happening to you? Uh, I do think that as we get past that weird stage of doubling in, in compute power at a certain point, that we're going to see some weird stuff like, oh yeah, this algorithm can tell me if I'm you know uh, about to have a heart attack or I'm about to uh, be diagnosed with diabetes, and those things will be more interesting as we go. And and what I think that will give us, or at least what will it will lead to, is something that I read a lot about you know earlier in the this decade 2010s or so about you know the rise of the robots which was a book or the second machine age two books that are sort of right along the same pathway you know a big part of those books was talking about you know in the future quote unquote what you're going to see is people going to get their healthcare from PAs and MPs with a little IBM Watson in their laptop next to them and so a part of the cost of you know uh, physicians is is taken away if you have more NPs and PAs. And so when you talk about combining that longitudinal data with the contextual knowledge of a PA or NP and those machine learning techniques and, and algorithms that are going to be much more powerful by 2025, 2030, I think that is what is going to cause the healthcare system to decentralize from where it is now. 
And when I say decentralized, I mean like a CVS is saying, okay, yeah, we do the front door, which you guys talked about in the, in the last episode. From that front door, we just made a, a, a connection where we have a, a sister site with Shields MRI. We're going to send you over there. And it's skipping over the, the big IDNs and the ACOs and, and that sort of thing. So that's where I, I would, in my mind, like that's, that's how I see it in terms of, especially when I see it being so fragmented and the things that we have at our fingertips today, there's going to be something like we can pull those together. It's almost like we had cable we decentralize that and now we have all these streaming services and we're going to have to try to tie them all back and someone's going to say hey I'll tie all your streaming services together it's like well that was cable so <laughs> it's the same thing with healthcare but i don't know Todd cuz like and now i'm getting a little ptsd cuz i spent <laughs> uh, about a decade working at GE Healthcare Digital and i lived in the EMR wars right mm. and the holy grail was interoperability and fire and we're going to be able to send data everywhere and every year i'd go to hims and we'd have these big data interoperability showcases. And every night, the night before the show opened, our engineers were pulling an all-nighter with the other engineers from the other companies there, trying to be able to pass one tiny piece of healthcare data across that. So yeah, you paint this wonderful panacea where CVS is gonna send data to Shields, is gonna send it to Mass General. <laughs> and I'm calling BS, man. I don't see how it works. Oh, <laughs> uh, that that's fair. I mean, that's fair looking backwards for sure. And, you know, I, I think you have to look, you know, the the old and not to you know talk too much about this piece, but when you talk when you look at you think of a technology as a chessboard, right? And on every square of the chessboard, um, something doubles. So the, there's an old story about, you know, a, a person came to the, the king wanted to uh, give a, a prize to this person who came up with the chessboard. And they said, give me a grain of rice doubling on each checkerboard uh, for my reward. And by the middle of that checkerboard, there were more grains of rice, obviously in theory, than there had ever been grown in human civilization in history. And again, when you get to the halfway point of that chessboard, things get weird and numbers that people don't really understand. And we're kind of at that precipice right now with computing power where, you know, 10 years ago when you were having those sorts of conversations and you can't pass that one piece of information, we're going to get in that funny spot where that technology just blows past where our expectations are. And that's why I said, we're going to get to the point in 10 years from now where we almost don't have language to describe what that, that new place looks like. Yeah, you've probably been hanging out with Larry Ellison and that's why, uh, <laughs> Oracle's buying Cerner, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that was the other thing you guys talked about, which I think is super, the M&A stuff is, you know, once you start seeing Apple buying a, a pair, watch out. That's where we're going to see some uh, really interesting shifts in the market for sure. One thing I did want to talk about, um, Todd had discussed the CVS or the retailer serving as the front door to the health system. You had mentioned on in your conversation with Michael about how virtual health, virtual care is opening up access to folks who didn't previously have good access to healthcare or any health access. Do you think that retailers versus typical IDNs serve as competitive entry points or are they supplemental to each other? And how do you think that change is going to affect underserved communities? I, I think the one thing you got to think about with this is geography plays a massive role. I mean, we're, the three of us are sitting here in the greater Boston area where, you know, you can't throw a baseball and not hit Dunkin' Donuts or a CVS, right? Uh, and you've got all these hospital facilities and doctors up and down the street. But if you're living in Montana, you know, there might be a Walmart 20 miles over 
and the hospital might be 150 miles away. And if you got a sick kid at two o'clock in the morning, are you schlepping to Walmart to see the, even if there's a nurse practitioner there, you're probably not, you know, I mean, I'm fortunate my pediatrician, my kids pediatrician look like a mile away, they're there. So I think that's when, you know, telemedicine really does become the great equalizer. And I think the, the tangent to that or the, the correlation would be, if you're in Montana and you get a rare form of cancer, you're not going to probably find the doctor who's an expert in that, but that doctor might be in New York City. And with telemedicine, you can now get a consult and get that world-class doctor. And that was not available five years ago. And I think that for better or for worse, the pandemic forcing and accelerating telemedicine and virtual care has benefited multiple communities. So we're looking at not only the geographic um, I guess, disparate locations where there isn't access to healthcare close by. Um, but we're looking at single parents who can't take time off work to go bring their kid in, but are now working from home and maybe able to call their doctor. Or if we're looking at LGBT youth or adults who may not feel comfortable sitting in a waiting room waiting for their doctor for care or women's health to discuss, you know, I guess, sensitive topics that they may not want to announce in a waiting room uh, to announce why they're there. So I think that virtual care and telehealth and easy access to those locations like CVS where you can get immediate care um, benefits a lot of folks that may not have had access before. But in the long term, can we track those patients to provide ongoing lifetime care? Right. I, I think, you know, when you talk about the things that the pandemic has laid bare, certainly accelerating telehealth and, and that sort of thing, for sure. I, I think what also it has laid bare is the absolute failure of the United States to serve broadband and you know usable internet to those geographic places that you're just talking about, Justin. I mean, it's just an ab abject failure uh, as a country to be able to, to do that, sort of thing, especially as we're getting into this type of you know, like I said, that shift that we're getting into where telemedicine now is like thousands of percents increase over what it was in 2019 and still going strong, to be honest, even after people are starting to go back to the, their doctor's office, telehealth is still a large percentage of the, the market right now. And so when you think about the opportunity that is in the market to, you know, or maybe the add-on effect of the opportunity to serve those communities that have been underserved in terms of broadband, whether it's Starlink or, or other types of, um, you know, satellite Wi-Fi or, or, you know, Google broadband, those sorts of things like that, that knock-on effect of getting that out into the market is the fact that that person in Montana, in, you, know, you know, Eastern Montana, where there's not a hospital for 500 miles around with a rare cancer, they can call someone in the Mayo Clinic or New York or wherever, and they can have those things and maybe go 100 miles to the nearest like big city where there's a lab to get the lab corp or request or whoever it is to do their tests. And they can send that electronically, again, to, to the doctor that they're seeing. So I think that those, you know, when we talk about the major themes or, or, or things that have been laid bare of among many, many things, of course, uh, about the, the basically, you know, lots of things within the U.S., it's the lack of uh, rural broadband, which again, feeds directly into how uh, virtual health can be a boon for people and how it is not really reaching where it needs to reach right now. But I think Brittany, what you said was really interesting was talking about some of those 
uh, underserved communities or people talking about very sensitive issues. And I think the point you made was spot on about the importance of telehealth and virtual care there. I think Todd's point about the access is critically important. We've got to fix that. But, you know, you go to your Minute Clinic or your Walgreens and like you're sitting out there next to the Fritos and (laughs) you're not going to talk about your most sensitive personal issues, medical issues like, you know, well, somebody else is, you know, picking up a can of Mountain Dew. And so telehealth gives the that population the ability to have a confidential conversation in the privacy of their own home. And I think that's really important. You know, a friend of mine who's a doctor says, you know, the most important part of any visit is the last 30 seconds or what he calls the, oh, and one more thing, doc moment. Because nine times out of 10, you go see your doctor and he's like, and he always says, what that one more thing is always the real problem that the patient's actually there for. And they spent the entire visit working up to that. So you start to wonder if telemedicine, because you're comfortable at your house, can actually address that, oh, doc, one more thing, and that's what you lead off with. Hmm. Yeah, I think my assumption would be that a lot of those types of conversations, it takes the courage to, you have to warm your courage up to get to, to talk to That's why it's the last thing. It's like, oh, last second, I just get to get out. And maybe, like you said, being in that comfortable environment to start with is just the panacea we need to to get that those conversations in quicker or you know because you, that's what you really want to spend the time on are the things that are the, the real reason you're there not just the oh well just checking on blood types and checking on this it's the we really want to talk about this and let's spend the time and dedicate it uh, properly so todd when you are analyzing commercial data are are you able to see patients I know, I know that you're able to see the shift to telemedicine. Are you able to see shifts towards uh, retailers? So patients who might otherwise be seen in a hospital are now being seen at CVS? Sure, yeah. I mean, retail clinics show up in, in medical claims data uh, for sure. And, you know, the interesting thing about it is you can actually see the type of visit and, and the diagnoses that come with them. So you can see if they're you know, uh, there's there are codes for things like first time visit or uh, subsequent visit or consult or follow up or you know so on and so forth. So there is a little bit of more of ability to tease out what that looks like over time. So um, yeah, and again, I, I actually I'm a big fan of the the retail clinics, and I know that CVS has plans now. They were announcing in December that they're really trying to knock on that door of of the PCP entry point and and really expand that. Uh, not only for the primary care stuff, for the urgent care as well. And, you know, as we all have seen in the last couple of years, urgent care, you know, 10% increases in the number of urgent care clinics popping up year over year over year. Uh, Just so many more options. And we've even seen when you look at, you know, speaking of looking at, you know, where patients are showing up, there's a seasonality to where patients go to the emergency room versus an urgent care clinic. And in the sort of the height of the pandemic in uh, December of 2020, you know, when we had the spike in the holidays last year, we actually saw almost a crossover for people visiting ERs versus like the percentage of people visiting ERs versus urgent care clinics, where it was typically like 70% ERs, 30% urgent care clinics with fluctuations due to seasonality when kids are in and out of school. But then when we hit December, we almost had a 51-49 split, like it was so close. And the the expectation is at some point this year, we're going to see that 50-50 split and maybe even see urgent care clinics 
overtake ERs. Uh, and maybe that'll slide back once the pandemic goes away. But as with telehealth, there are definitely new normals coming through with retail clinics and, you know, just for convenience sake and urgent care clinics for convenience sake. And you know, I think that those are the things we really want to look at. And the reason that I ask is I'm curious to watch and understand who shifted and also now who is staying. Because I think that the people who are staying, that's going to tell us a lot about what, where are the gaps in our current traditional healthcare system. So I think that if, should this ever end, we should see who stays within the telehealth space, the retail space, and what does it say about our healthcare system that they're not served in an IDN? Geographically as well, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when we look at, you know, like Justin, you had said, we can't throw a rock without hitting a CVS or a Dunkin' around here. <laughs> it's totally true. So is it going to be a type of thing where, you know, telehealth stays strong in places where there aren't a lot of, of places for service, which I would imagine it probably would? Around here, do we see people with the expansion and going to retail clinics for their primary care, do we see that expand over time? Or at least, like you said, Brittany, uh, continue on and, and who are the, the loyalists and who are the, the reverters almost. Uh, but you know, when you, when you think about decentralized healthcare like that, where you walk in the door at CVS and then maybe a future where you've got some sort of longitudinal component in an app that goes to uh, some sort of connection back to CVS and they send you to Shields or whatever it might be for an MRI, you know, the the first gut reaction to the to that what people usually have is that, oh, well, decentralized healthcare is going to lead to worse outcomes. And, you know, we were kind of sold on this continuum of care being the better outcomes. You know, when the ACOs came into market back in the early 2010s or so, you know, they're like, hey, we keep everybody in this continuum of care within our network, they're going to see better outcomes. And we haven't really seen that. I mean, certainly mortality is is lower uh, over time. Uh, maybe not this last year or so, but uh, two years or so. But you know, when you look at things like the measured disability adjusted life years, which is a metric that kind of covers, you know, the number of uh, years of life lost due to premature death or productive life lost due to health or disability, actually started to. It was been declining like crazy from the 90s, of course. But then in 2013-ish or so, it started to creep back up. Uh, a little bit of a plateau um, in so 2017 or so, but those measures, that's a good correlative factor to to how people are doing with their disease, how they're managing their disease. And so, you know, we were, like I said, we were sold on this continuum of care being the thing that's going to increase everyone's healthcare outcomes. And, and you know, if you compare that to decentralizing a little bit, maybe the convenience leads to more people going to get care. So, you know, something to have to keep our eyes on. Yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting point, Todd. And I'm actually thinking back to a blog that you recently wrote talking about the rise of at-home care mm. and how that's really starting to spike in the pandemic. And if you were to start to stitch a theme across what we've been talking about here for the past 25 minutes, it's that I think we're entering in an era where care is going to be everywhere. And, you know, it used to be 20 years ago, I guess, you know, you go to a hospital, you go to your doctor's office, and maybe you go to an imaging facility. And even then, standalone imaging facilities were just starting to come on. And now with the advent of technology, and admittedly, there's still areas to go, as you, as you noted, we've got telehealth, you've got at-home care, you've got ambulatory surgery centers, which are spiking. You have got standalone imaging centers. You still have the hospitals, but you don't have suburban branches of the hospitals. Are those ASCs or not? That's a good question. 
uh, you still have the good old PCP office. And, you know, then you've got your whole digital therapeutics and your remote patient monitoring and your chronic care condition management tools. And so care is everywhere. And it's been this massive explosion. And so I don't have the answer. I don't think anybody has the answer. Maybe Oracle actually does have the answer, right? Because we're all throwing off all this data. And, you know, I use Dropbox to manage my personal data. And, you know, I can access my, you know, to-do list anywhere on any device because it's all sitting up in the cloud. Does Oracle start to become the home of like I listed 20 different care locations? Can an Oracle or a Google or a Microsoft or an Amazon collect all of that data and stitch together the real longitudinal record that no matter who's treating you or where they're treating you, they can kind of get that full picture? I don't know. From an intellectual curiosity perspective, that's a really cool idea. From a desire to not live in a Black Mirror episode, what do you think of that? <laughs> eh, it wouldn't bother me. My life's not that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's uh, fair, you know, and that gets into, you know, security and things like that where, you know, HIPAA compliance for, you know, all this data that we're talking about, you know, those servers have to be HIPAA compliant, which has a whole host of things that we're, you know, all very well versed in there at times. So, you know, that that is something that we would, I would love to see more cognizance of, you know, when, when people are loading their data up and, you know, maybe some people are not as caring about what, who sees what in their data, uh, but for, for sure that is something that uh, to think about. Um, the one thing that you kind of mentioned, Justin, of, of all these new places, you know, as opposed to 20 years ago where you get healthcare, what it reminds me of is the, the idea that your healthcare is not something that happens to you. It, it's almost like a habit. Right. And how do you develop habits? Well, you have to make the thing you want to do become a habit. You need to make it obvious and in front of you all the time. Like whether that's like exercise. Oh, I just have to have a, a recumbent bike in my bedroom every morning. So when I wake up, boom, it's there. I'll do it. Okay. So when you have that, you know, minute cl clinic right around the corner or, you know, a telehealth option running right a computer that you're sitting at every day or whatever it might be, I, I think that when we look at those outcomes, in the future, the opportunity for people to get healthcare as opposed to what they could, where they could get it before, and um, you know, I, I just think that as as there are more opportunities to get your healthcare, uh, people will take them because they're more convenient, and so convenience equals easier habit forming in my mind. So, you know, that's the type of thing that um, I have hope for in the future. That if we keep expanding these, and maybe a little decentralization is okay, and and that will allow for, you know, people who would not give a care before will will maybe say, oh, that's right, they'll do it. That's interesting, and so I think that's probably a really good breaking point and opportunity, Todd, to tee us up for the next episode. Because our next couple episodes, we've got uh, a series of guests who I think will have a lot to talk about this. We're going to be joined by uh, senior leaders from Pair Therapeutics on one of our upcoming episodes, talking about digital therapeutics and the role that they play. And then we also have a uh, senior executive joining us from Teladoc uh, to talk very much about how telemedicine, virtual care, and as you all know, Teladoc bought Livongo. And so they got into the chronic condition management space. And I think I look forward to hearing on both of those podcasts and their perspectives on this changing dynamics of healthcare where and how we're all going to experience it. And so with that, I want to thank both of you all today. I really enjoyed talking with you and I can't wait to have more conversations like this with you all over the coming months and years. Thanks for listening today to Definitively Speaking. 
please join me next time when I'm joined by Dan Trencher, Senior Vice President for Strategy at Teladoc. And we'll have a wide-ranging conversation around telemedicine and virtual care and what's the difference. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care and please stay healthy. Now, can you imagine if we put a PCP in a Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> well, it's like those combination Taco Bell KFCs. Yes. It's a home run every time. Yeah, exactly. That would be a home run in New England. There's a CVS literally across the street from me, which is across from a Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs>